So, without further ado, let's uh, open our Bibles to Psalm 12, where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. I invite you all to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Psalm 12, from verse 1 through verse 4. I'm reading from the ESV. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Let's pray. Father God, just ask you, Lord, to remind us this afternoon that you are indeed the king the who reigns the ancient of days, who holds time in his hands. Lord, remind us that you are a king over everything. Remind us that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has supremacy over all things. And Lord, I pray that through the exposition of your word this afternoon, through your Holy Spirit, you would minister to your people, that you would give me clarity of mind, clarity in my, in my speech, and I pray, Lord, that you would anoint the hearers and move among us this afternoon. To your glory, we ask this, and we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. Shortly after I was born again, and I'm sure already many of you remember when I first came to Christ. At that time, I lived what some would call a double life. I had my spiritual life, where I used to go to church and uh, read scripture, and I had my natural life, or what we call worldly life, carnal life, according to the Word of God. And I separated these two things. You see, I was a secularist, and I believed this lie that there is some neutral ground outside, and I could live whichever way I wanted to live. I could think the same way I always thought. I could talk and act the way I always did. I even voted the same way I always voted. Nothing changed. I just have this little private sphere called spirituality. And I kept these two things separate. For anyone who have been in the faith for even a little time, you know this holds no water. Right? Right? It holds no water. But here's my question. Why is it that most Christians actually live like that? They separate the private sphere, the Christian sphere, from the public sphere. This is, we believed in this myth that we could leave the truth in us and we keep our mouths shut 
and we never speak and proclaim God's truth out there. Okay, let's start from the very beginning. God is holy, and we are not. God has a holy standard of righteousness that is called the moral law that emanates from his very character. And all of us, that includes me, have fell short of the glory of God because we are sinners. But God in his great mercy and love have sent his one and only son to live a perfect life fulfilling that moral law that we cannot fulfill and every other law in the Mosaic Covenant that we could not live up to and went on the cross taking on the wrath of God. The justice of God has been satisfied on Christ on the cross that day on Calvary. And he absorbed that wrath of God that you and I deserve, rightly deserve, truthfully deserve. That's what Christ had done on the cross, but more than that, his righteousness, his holiness is imputed to us, sinners. So now we are righteous in the sight of God, not because of anything we have done, but because of everything Christ had done. We are holy and we're called to be holy because our God is holy. Amen? This is the heart of the gospel. And the fullness of the gospel has implications. There's implication to believing that. There are implications to living a holy life. That the Holy Spirit is in us guiding us, teaching us, anointing us, giving us the gift to work the good works that he has prepared for us to do beforehand. And there's these implications of the gospel that we will be talking about today. See, once someone says Jesus Christ is Lord, that means Jesus Christ is king over all things. Not just your things, or church thinks he's king over all things. We believe in the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of the word of God. That's what we believe. And as a Christian, what we do when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we deny ourselves and follow him. We submit, we bow the knee to the Lord of Lords and we say, not my will, but your will be done. Amen? One of the reformers, his name is John Calvin, one of the most uh, prominent Christian theologians ever. And he had a huge impact on my Christian walk. In his magnum opus, his, which means his biggest work called the Institute of the Christian Religion, Systematic Theology, of self-denial in the Christian walk, he says the following. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own in so far as we can. Let us, therefore, forget ourselves 
and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's own. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's own. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are God's own. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. That what it means to be a Christian. This is what I will persuade you today with through the Word of God. I want to bring the Word of God to bear on everything that we do. And I'm speaking to myself as well as I'm speaking to you. So let's dig in and see what David had to say here. The first verse, Psalm 12, verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. David here begins his psalm with save. In the NASB, it's translated help. Help, O Lord. There's a tragedy. SOS. Please help us. And the reason is, for the godly one is gone. And look at the parallelism. This is uh, as a feature of Hebrew poetry where it's repeating the same thing twice. Just in case you didn't get it the first time, the second phrase re-emphasizes the first phrase. For the godly one is gone. And here's the second phrase. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Surely David did not mean that there is nobody who believes in Yahweh, in the triune God of Scripture. It would be absurd for him to think that there's nobody who believes other than him. But that's, that's exactly what he's not saying. What he's saying is that the faithful are nowhere to be seen. In the public sphere, they are gone. And that's why he says, Lord, Help, raise up men and women who love you, who stand for truth, who proclaim the fullness of the gospel. Help, O Lord. Normally in the Psalms, we don't have a historical context, so I cannot give you one. Some Psalms do have historical context, but this one does not. But we know so much about the life of King David and the prophet and the servant of the Lord David, that we can just survey his life and think, why, where did he experience this? There are many places, but here's one. If you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. Let me set this up for you. In the previous chapter... Saul is convinced that David is a usurper. Usurper means someone who wants to do a coup d'etat, someone who wants to overthrow King Saul. And Saul was so convinced of this lie that David is that guy. He needed him dead, and he indeed wanted to murder him. 
who stood up to Saul, his own son, Jonathan. And he's the one, as a matter of fact, arranged for David to flee. And so David fled. We come to chapter 21 and the, that one verse. You're going to see that David have fled to a Levitical town called Nob. It's northeast of Jerusalem, not too far. And he comes and we read in this one verse. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? You see, Ahimelech made a, an obvious observation that David had nobody with him. He is the king's man. He's a captain of troops. He surely should have had people with him if he's in the king's business. But he had nobody with him. But it was also true that he was alone and no one was with him. Because everybody believed the lie, the rumors, the slander about David that he was indeed a usurper. As a matter of fact, you can read this about this again in 2 Samuel chapter 16. You can read this on your own, where you see a Benjamite coming out while David having another episode where his son was actually usurping the kingdom, and he had to run out of Jerusalem. And the Benjamite was coming after him, saying, you're a man of blood. You betrayed the king. There are some people who clearly believed that David was indeed someone who's committing treason against King Saul. But there were also believers. Surely there were some believers who believed in the word of the prophet Samuel, that David was anointed by the Lord. And I'm sure also there were many people who knew David as an upright and righteous man who loved his king, Saul. And just looking at the story of King David Previously, before he was a king, dealings with King Saul, he was very gracious and very kind. And so people recognized that he was being slandered. Lies were being uttered about David. But he was the problem that nobody of repute, nobody of a good reputation, of a godly, godly man or faithful man would stand up with David. As a matter of fact, in the following chapter, if you just turn the page, you don't have it on your screen, just look at your Bible. Chapter 22, look at verse 2. Other than his own immediate family, who gathered around David and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. In other words, all the outcasts. Where are all the godly people? Where are the faithful? Why have the faithful vanished? If slander was being uttered against David, why isn't everyone talking about it? I have a theory. See if you agree. Many people were hearing about what David, what's happening to David, and they were relegating their belief about David, who is a godly man, who wasn't doing the things that they were saying, but they didn't want to get involved in politics. It's politics. It's political. The king had an enemy. Who wants to talk against the king? They just kept their mouths shut, and they minded their own business. 
and they just huddled together in a corner and prayed for God's servant David. But is that what we're called to do? Well, clearly, in Psalm 12, let's go back to Psalm 12. David is saying, save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And then he, he tells us more in verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Look what David is doing. In the first phrase, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Immediately, you should get a hint of something that Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? The, the whole neighbor thing immediately should ting, ting, ting in your head. That is Ten Commandments, and you would be right. That is exactly from there, from the Ten Commandments, from specifically, it's the Ninth Commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You can turn there. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so what is David doing? He's bringing the moral law and he's calling out the evil in the wicked. And he's saying, well, you see that? That's evil. Why? Because it wasn't going the way that David wanted? No. Because he brought the law of God and he said, this doesn't conform to this. And therefore, this is evil. Specifically, telling lies. Slandering people. And you see, the problem with lies, here's why lies are problematic and they are dangerous and they're forbidden in the Ten Commandments. You see, a lie, the only thing that makes a lie a lie is that it's close to the truth. See, the further the lie gets from the truth, it's not a lie anymore. It's called idiocy. And some people do believe in that. But the point is, the lie is very close to the truth and it twists the truth. David is a servant of Saul. David is popular. Saul is a king, right? But then they start to talk about his motivation. A lie is close to the truth. It twists, it twists, twists the truth. Look at the second phrase. They utter lies to his neighbor, that everyone utters lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart. You see, here's another thing about lies. A lot of lies, they are come well packaged with a bow on top of them and they are given with a smile. It's a lie. And they're given with a double heart, which means that lie, that nice packaging of the lie inside it is just a lie. It is evil. And so we have to call it out. You see, the moral law of God is a reflection of who God is. It's God's goodness and God is God's truth, right? You cannot separate. What, what happens is that we separate who God, who God is and his law, as if his law is external to who God is, and that is a heresy. The law is that it emanates, it reflects God's very character. We cannot separate the moral law, the Ten Commandments, from who God is. And if we were to stand for truth, 
ultimately God, then we ought to stand for what is right. We ought to defend truth. Now, on the ninth commandment, the Westminster Larger Catechism actually addresses this. In its discussion, in the discussion of the Westminster Larger Catechism, you can read this on your own, by the way, if you write it on your notes, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 143 to 145. It talks about the ninth commandment, and I'm going to just, you're going to see it on your screen there, but it's maybe too small for you to read. Just listen to me. Here's the question. What are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbor, as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, subordinating false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth. Take careful attention to the wording here. Passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous or the righteous according to the work of the wicked. Forgery, concealing the truth, undo silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others. Speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in, a, in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of the truth or justice. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, impartial censuring, misconstruing in intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting. We're going to talk about this in a moment. Thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, and so on and so forth. You can read it on your own later. So what is the role of the church? If we're supposed to stand for the truth because the godly one is not gone, the church of the living God is here, and we will stand for truth. Make no mistake about it. That's what we're called to do. Let's turn to the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5. And you will see here from the words of Jesus Christ himself. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's turn the same gospel, chapter 
10, verse 26 to 28. Here we read, Jesus also speaking. He says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the church called to do? Are the church called to huddle together and talk about the evil that is out there? Whisper amongst ourselves, come to church. Oh man, you see, the world is kind of crazy out there, eh? Yeah, man. We just have to, you know what? What are we going to do about it? Is that what church is? Are we called to shine the light of the gospel to all nations so people will know and see the goodness of God? Are we called to bring the moral law on the bearing of the culture and call evil, evil? That is evil. God is holy. Repent, turn from your wicked ways and trust in Jesus and know that Jesus is king over all, over all things, not just your things, not just church things, but all things. And then you see people change. Shine the light. What is the light? What convicts sinners but the law of God? How can a sinner know that he's a sinner unless we say, here's what the law says, you're a sinner. You need a savior. You need Jesus. And once they bend the knee to Christ and submit to his lordship, the gospel has implications. Their heart will change. They will love the law of God. God will conform us to the image of his son. We will be sanctified. You see, when we are start to separate what the moral law says, what the Ten Commandments say, when we do not call evil, evil, then we're not preaching the gospel. Do you get it? We have to bring the moral law. Otherwise, people will not know that they are guilty. Guilty against what? What is the standard that makes me guilty? The moral law, the Ten Commandments. That makes you guilty. So what, am I, what, what do I have to do to get saved? Repent. And trust in him for salvation. Let's go back. Psalm 12. Verse 3. He says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Here's the first thing. There are two things that we just discussed, by the way. The righteousness that is redefined. You're going to see it on your screen here. Righteousness is redefined and repackaged to give, but it's a, it's a lie. But they're repackaged. It sounds like it's true, but it's not true. You will ask how we discern, we'll get there. The second thing that we're going to see right now about boasting in the lies as if they were virtue. It's a lie. It's evil. Not in my opinion. That's not my opinion. According to the word of God. 
But what if someone is boasting as if this is good? You have a problem there. And so that's what he's saying. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. He's asking the Lord, there is judgment. Lord, bring about judgment. By the way, every time we say, Maranatha, come, Jesus, come, you know what you're doing? You're asking for judgment to come. Because what will happen when Jesus comes back is judgment. Look around me. This is very important. Very important. If we do not judge the world by bringing the moral law up to bear in order for them to be saved, then they won't be saved. It's very important. Because everybody's under condemnation already. And so if we do not warn them, if we do not say, you are falling short from the glory of God, what will happen is that there will come a day where there is judgment, and at that day, there is no going back. So when we judge things and we say, this is wrong, we're not doing this wrongly, we're doing this because we love them. We want them to turn from their sins. We want them to trust in Christ. That's what we're doing. So may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. We hate evil. David hates wickedness. And he's saying, well, that is evil. The tongue makes great boasts. Let's talk about great, great boasts that is happening right now. It's the month of June. And if you didn't get the memo yet, it's Pride Month, which means every corporate entity, governmental organization, and even nonprofit organization changing their label and they're putting the rainbow flag that stands for LGBTQ+. You see, the world thinks that the vice they're celebrating, which is the vice of homosexuality and every other type of sexual immorality, including the acronym LGBTQ+, they think that's a virtue. And so what are they doing? They're taking that virtue and they are putting it on on their sleeve and they're preaching to the rest of us, the rest of the non-believers, those who are wrong in their mind, that this is what we ought to celebrate, all of us. That's what we're called to do, according to the world. But what does the Word of God say about that? You see, the problem with the lies is when they go unchecked by God's people, everybody believes it. You see, because we believe this lie, we can keep our mouths shut, and everything will be all right. But we do not put our faith on our sleeve. Someone else will. They are. They are bringing their worldview up against the culture and they are preaching their virtues, their new moral law. And we are keeping them all shut because we believe the lie that there's some mutual ground and that myth called secularism. And that's a lie. There is no such thing called secularism. All the world belongs to Christ. Supremacy of Christ the moral law, God will judge everyone. And so by his standard, we proclaim the truth. 
And you see the problem with that boast of this month is that they're boasting in pride, which is itself a sin, but that sin is giving virtue and giving credence for a multitude of other sins. That's what happens when you redefine truth. When you redefine righteousness, that's what happens. So what is our role? How can we fight this? Let's see what the Word of God has to say about that. Turn with me to the epistle of 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 5. Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Now we have a problem. The world is living according to the world, but God help us, in the church we have people, clergymen, Pastors who are supporting all types of evil. And what I mean by evil, everything that is contrary to the word of God is evil. And they're supporting that. They are marching for that. They're wearing the clerical collars and they're marching as if God approves of these things and all other types of lies. But we have another problem in the church is that we have pastors filling up pulpits that they do not want to speak about the evil and confront sin because they don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. These are evangelical churches. They are not rebuking, they're not correcting. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of man. But we say no. The church stands. The church, according to Paul in First, in first Timothy, he says it is the buttress and pillar of truth. So what do we do? Well, Paul gives us the tools. Here are the tools that the Lord has given us. In the same chapter, the last two verses, Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We Everything we need, church, is right here. The word of God is right here. I hope it's not collecting dust on our study, on our desks. 
When we allow the word of God to speak to us, to conform us to the image of his son, and we stand for truth and speak the truth, even when we suffer for righteousness' sake. People say, you heard this, Pastor John said, we haven't been counted worthy to suffer. So here's my question. Are we standing up for truth? You see, when we obey the word of God and fulfill our calling, don't worry, suffering will come. And just the topic that I just addressed, you know it will. Needless to say, I don't have to say it. Look at chapter 4, just continuing. Now we have the tools. We have the problem in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3. Paul gave us the problem. The end of chapter 3, he gave us the tools. Chapter 4, he tells us what to do now. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Another word for lies. As for you, always be sober-minded. Be sober-minded, church. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill the ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith henceforth. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The end of the Gospel of Matthew, when the resurrected Christ was talking to his disciple, given the Great Commission, he said, all authority... And heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. Fulfill your ministry. God has given you the gifts, has given you his eternal word. Go and do the good works that he has prepared beforehand for you to do. Now, just lest you misunderstand, 2 Timothy is written... To Timothy. It has a special application on the elders and the pastors of the church who are the leaders of the church. But make no mistake about it. Do not miss this. It is written to Timothy, but it is for us. The implication of this text, you cannot hide from. You cannot. Let's go back to Psalm 12. Here's the last verse. Those who say, with our tongue, 
we will prevail. See, there, there are three boasts here. The Reformed theologian James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. There are three boasts, and here's the first boast. With our tongues, we will prevail. The future belongs to us, they say. Your children belong to us, the world will proclaim. But guess what? This is the church of the living God, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. But they misunderstand because they have believed a lie. They have preached a lie because they believed a lie from the pit of hell, thinking that ends justify the means. And it doesn't matter what happens if I keep telling the lie as long as I'm winning. Second boast is said in verse 4 here. Our lips are with us. Autonomy is simple. Our lips are with us. We are the arbiters of truth. We tell you, collectively as a culture, we will tell you what is right and what is wrong, what is morally acceptable, what is not good. And when you bring your Bible, they will kick you out of public square. You have nothing to say. Why? Because they think what you are believing in is evil. Because they call good evil and evil good. You get it? And once they are doing that, we, and God help us, I say this about, for, for me too, believe me, believe me. We're scared. That's true. I'm scared. My wife has a job too. But we need to help each other to stand for truth together and to bring the word of God and confront evil. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the lies of the enemy. So if we do not, we're not taking swords here. We are just speaking the truth, church. That's all I am saying. We speak the truth in public. So they say, our lips are with us. We are autonomous. We are the one who are making what is true. We are the one that, who are arbitrating morality. Morality is up to us. Here's a third boast, according to James Montgomery Boyce. Who is must master over us? Who? They're denying accountability. There is no judge. You see? There is no judge. Nobody's judging me. There is no moral standard that I have to adhere to, that I'm judged by. I didn't hear anybody. Nobody said anything. Because all the Christians are doing this. They have no way to know if we do not speak. Let's turn to the New Testament. In Acts chapter 17... I have uh, I've shared an exposition on Acts chapter 17 some time ago, so you can go back to the archives. And if you can't find it, you can uh, ask David uh, 
Campbell here, he will let you know <laughs> where it is. We did an exposition on Acts 17, verse by verse. If you are interested in that, go ahead in our archives. We're going to read just a few verses here, and let me set this up for you. Now, Paul is in Athens, and he's go about to speak in the Areopagus in his famous sermon called Sermon of the Unknown God, Acts chapter 17. And he goes to the Areopagus. So what is the Areopagus? Areopagus is a place where religious affairs, political affairs, judicial affairs, philosophical and educational affairs are taking place in Athens. You cannot miss this detail. It's there for a reason. So he goes, Paul goes into the Areopagus and speak to the men of Athens. You cannot miss this. It's very important, church. He's speaking to judiciary, political members, philosophers, educational institutions, whatever it was at that time. Everybody is hearing Paul preach and proclaim the gospel. Here's what Paul says in verse 28. He says, For in him that is God, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I want to stop right there. Here's what they think. They're creating God. A lot of these apostate denominations where they have these apostate uh, clergy, they are creating a God after their own image, an imagination. They think God is pleased with these lawlessness, the things that, the lies that are being told in our culture. But that's what we ought to step into and say, no. Here's what God approves of, and you hold the word of God, and you proclaim the word of God, the whole counsel of God, not just the bits we're comfortable with, the whole gospel, the full gospel, and confront evil. He continues, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people, not just some people, all people everywhere to repent. Repent and obey the gospel. Because he has fixed a day on which he will, oh my goodness, again. He says it again, yes, because it's part of the gospel. He will judge the world in righteousness. What's the righteousness? The moral law. That's the standard of God. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is Christ. What happened to Paul? Look at the verse 32. Now, when they have heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Another said, we will, we will hear you again about this. We will get persecuted. We will be mocked. More than mocked, I'm sure. I am sure. Church, 
we ought to be like Paul, as heralds of the truth. I beseech you, I plead with you, and please hold me accountable to this. It's very important because I see this, I see the decay of the society, and here's the thought that I have, where are all the godly men and women? Have the faithful vanished? The only preaching, the only talk that is allowed in our society are lies. They're wearing their faith on their sleeves, church. And we who hold the truth are silent. God, help us. For the sake of our children, for the sake of the lost who don't know any better. We ought to proclaim the truth, the whole truth, church, not just the bits. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. That's it. That's all I have to say. No. That's not the whole gospel. That's a half-limped gospel. That's a broken gospel. That's a weak gospel. That is not the gospel that this word proclaims. Let's stand for truth. And the Lord is with us. We're the church of the living God. The Holy Spirit is with us. And we're together. We will not forsake any of you. And by the grace of God, you won't forsake me. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we will be men and women are ready to proclaim the whole truth from the rooftops, that we would let our light shine in the, dark, in the midst of darkness. Lord God, I pray that we would proclaim your word. Give us courage, God, in every area of life, that we would not stay silent, but we would proclaim the truth with gentleness and respect, but we would proclaim it nonetheless. Lord God, the faithful have not vanished. Your church is here. And God, I pray that we would stand on your word and we would not grow weary or fear, but know that you are empowering us. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us because for far too long we have forsaken the public square. We have kept our mouths shut we have believed the myth of secularism and relegated the truth of the gospel and whispered it amongst ourselves. Lord, help us and forgive us. Help us, Lord, that we would speak the truth with power and with authority. And Lord, I pray that you would change hearts, bring people to know you, that they would glorify you, and they would know that our King reigns. He's alive and he's interceding for us, and he has never forsaken us, and he has given us his word. Lord, I pray that we would not be a people who are looking after the accolades of men, but we will do what is right in the sight of our God, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in the mighty name that is above every name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.